Hello and welcome to Inside Intercom. I am Emmett Connolly. I'm the VP of Design at Intercom. And today's guest on the show is a very special one. It is Elizabeth McGuan. Elizabeth is UX Director at Shopify. She's author of a brand new book called Design by Definition. And Elizabeth is an ex-colleague because Elizabeth used to work at Intercom as well. So I'm very excited to have you on the show and talk to you about this intersection between design and writing that you're addressing in the book. So you're very welcome, Elizabeth. Thanks so much, Emmett. So happy to be here. Do you want to share a little bit about your background and your role to kind of help people understand where you're even coming from professionally in your approach to the topic? Yeah. And my only problem with this question is like, how far do I, do I go back? So I won't give you my whole life story, but yes. So I, you know, obviously at Intercom, I was a content designer and I was the first content designer that you hired and had did so many really interesting things. Like it was such a brilliant time in my career, got to work on everything at Intercom and then so many fascinating things. And I think it was there that I first sort of had the seeds of the book, to be honest with you. I remember giving a talk to the brand design team there and was talking about the role of language in design. And, and that's where I kind of, kind of started digging into things like metaphor and narrative and concepts that came up in the book again. But my background prior to that, like I, I started out working in newspapers. I worked at the Sunday Business Post as a like copy girl, I think it was called in a very retro, retrograde manner, editorial assistant, let's say, and uh, names are very important. And then, you know, moved into UX in a, an agency called Peggy Content, where a lot of intercom people had worked as well, now called each another. And yeah, I was in Dublin and then in London for a long time working in agencies before I started at intercom. So I, I kind of was a bit of a jack of all trades when it came to writing and design and information architecture. But from the beginning, I was really interested in structure and the structure of how things work in a design and, and like hierarchy and journeys and narrative and all those things. So when I started working in product intercom and then joined Shopify, it sort of just allowed me to go deeper on those topics. And yeah, at Shopify, you know, I was given the opportunity to join as a design manager. And that's been really amazing because I've got to lead teams of researchers and designers and content designers and technologists. And really kind of fuse all of those different skills. And it's been really like gratifying to find that like the designers that I work with feel supported by me and that coming in from a different approach or a different lens than maybe their background has been a benefit as opposed to a hindrance and has allowed me to kind of geek out about typography and motion design and all sorts of things that I'm really fascinated by, but were not necessarily in my core skills when I started out. That was one of the things actually that struck me about the book, reading it, was when, when I first heard that you were going to write a book, I was expecting a kind of like, I was like, oh, awesome, demystifying content design right. or something like that, right? The yeah. canonical, what is content design anyway book? But as I read the book, I realized it was about so much more than that. Was that like a process or how did you decide what the book was going to be about in the first place? Yeah. You know, if you are a writer and you work in design, at, at a certain point, somebody has probably told you you should write a book because you're a writer and why wouldn't you? <laughs> and it's so easy. But I think for a long time, I was like, I don't want to write. There were a lot of really good books about content design already. And I didn't want to write something that was just about like how to be a better content designer or how to have a seat at the proverbial table or, you know, because those had been done and been done really well and just felt like a retread. And I also sort of had this, I suppose, innate feeling that I was really interested in the outcome and the design work itself and not so much in the boundaries of like discipline stuff because the discipline conversations that we've had over the last 25, 30 or more years in design are ongoing and they vary, but I'm not so much interested in those, those barriers, I guess. And then when I talked to a book apart, the fact that that was the first thing that they said was like, we want this to be a design book. And they were like 
it's partly because we have a lot of content design books in our roster and we would love it for something that sits outside of that. So it helped me kind of point the book. It was difficult when I wrote it because I think my natural affinity was to go back to the words. And I, I think I fought myself a little bit in trying to like, oh, it has to be this big picture design book with a capital D. And, you know, it was, I had to kind of get it out of my own way and be like, talking about the writing is talking about the design, but to not let myself be limited by that. So I don't know if that's a very direct answer. It was a process. And I think I was pushing myself to not do the expected thing and just to do what I've, you know, follow where my interests led me. Mm. Did you have an ideal reader in mind? Not a specific person, but a type of person, right? Yeah. I mean, I kind of did have a real person and I've told him this before, but there's a designer at Shopify called Johann Stromfist and I, I met, referenced him in the book and he's a motion designer who works on our design system team. And I had given a talk that was a version of this book in Toronto in 2019 at a design leadership conference. And he contacted me afterwards and was like, oh, this was really meaningful to me. Like you put to word something that I was trying to figure out or like a, a, a gap that I had in my own work uh, to do with concept definition and concept clarity. And it was really gratifying. Like, I mean, especially for someone who was like at the time, a new design manager, like to have somebody who to me was like one of the, you know, the best and also maybe the most esoteric designers within Shopify to be like, this was really meaningful to me. It really made me feel like, okay, I could speak to a design audience and that would be meaningful. So Johan was always in the back of my mind as I was writing but I think beyond that, I wanted to speak to the types of people I was leading, right? So I like if I was thinking about content designers, I was thinking about the content designers I worked with who were sometimes working on like incredibly technical things like, you know, Meredith Castile and a bunch of other content designers that you might know who have come through Shopify and working on like developer problems or working on, you know, design system problems. So they're not just like working on interfaces and writing words in interfaces, they're really often working like under the hood of the design. So I was thinking about them too. I would love someone to write a book for me to, uh, in response, <laughs> to, you know, the, the biggest mysteries about work that I have, but let, let's stick with that. Cause that's an interesting example of a motion designer who you would not think of immediately finding a load of utility in something that's to do with like words on a page or whatever. Yeah. So what did that person take from that? Or what might someone like that take from the book? apart from diving into the how to write real good aspects? Yeah. yeah. So I think what he took away from it was this idea that so much of the language that we use around design, before we even get to the words on the page, before we even have a page to put words on, is the descriptions that we use and when we're describing what we're making. And that happens really, really early on in like whatever process you have in your company, whether that's, you know, a brief or a you know, a project definition or a problem statement. And often those things aren't even written by designers. They're written by product managers and sometimes they're written by engineers. And so when you bring those ideas and those, those words, that language into the room where design starts, if you don't actually take the time to define the terms that you're using, and it doesn't just mean like, you know, the objects in the system, which is what we usually think of when we're defining terms, sort of like the actual things that might appear in the API, but literally the concept it is that classic, like everybody's looking at a part of the elephant. Everybody will sort of take their own meaning from those words and often head up it off in very different directions. So I think for him, it was that it is really an internal tool to make you think about the language that you're using to express your ideas to each other. And, you know, I talk about this in the book, you know, when you move into interface design really quickly, it's often because you feel motivated to get away from the messiness of words and into something that feels concrete because mm -hmm. you're like, if I can see it, then we mm -hmm. can talk about it. 
But what actually happens, and I'm sure you've seen this as well, is that you can go pretty far through the interface design process and then still be looking at it and have people arguing over what it should be because the idea they had in their head because of the words they're using to describe the thing are really different. And so I had this example in the book of a team that was trying to design a new data product that basically looked like a spreadsheet and had like rows and columns. And they just kept designing better spreadsheets with like more white space and like nicer colors. And then the content designer on that team actually was like, let's think of like entirely different conceptual models for this. And the one she came up with was a sandwich because it's a container that can have lots of different things inside it, but it's always a sandwich, which I love because it's playful. And that term was never meant to be a word that appeared on the interface. It was never meant to like literally be used as a brand name, but it was, an, it was a concept that allowed the team to think about the visual design and even the marketing of the product in a very different way. So to me, that's like such a great classic example of the thing that was meaningful to Johan, which was clarifying the concept and having fun with the concept instead of trying to brush past it and move into the interface is really, really valuable and, and like actually saves time later on. Yeah, there were definitely sections that I was reading and I was like, I think I know where this came from because it felt <laughs> so familiar. I felt seen, but definitely the examples I, I think that you give in the book where you're saying like, Hey, you might have a bunch of people critiquing the superficial aspects of the design or just seeming like they're at cross purposes. And eventually you spend so long digging into why, and you realize that, Oh, our some foundational model that we each hold in our heads is slightly different. And so because we're looking at the same thing through two different lenses, we will just never get on the same page. And, and the value of starting with that foundational idea that we're starting from is, is something that we definitely still try to bring through in our work. And some of the stuff that I think we realized when, when you were working here as well. So you live on, Elizabeth, in... in- <laughs> I don't know if anyone's told you this, by the way, you even have your own, you know, custom Slack emojis. Oh, I haven't heard. Is it, is it words mean things? Is it's that words mean things. If you type your uh, colon <laughs> words mean things into, into uh, Slack and intercom, your face comes up. And so still referred to quite often. So congratulations. That's more, the guess. highest honor. It really is. <laughs> Another example, though, that made me think of was the power of just n- not specifically choosing the right name for something, but like your sandwich thing, just being able to label a thing. And giving us all a collective shorthand to refer to us, you, you can like collapse or compact an entire idea down to the word sandwich. And then we just, everyone starts saying sandwich and it's a very handy shorthand. So not even for like naming things, but just having a label for complicated ideas, I think can be super useful, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think when I started writing the book, I thought, oh, well, naming will be the heart of it because naming, I remember when I joined Intercom, you were like, we have a problem with naming and we need to solve it. And I remember we did that research study where we got everybody to draw pictures of what they thought Intercom was and they were all totally different. And I was like, oh, this is really interesting. It's not really just about the name that we use because people are using the same name, but they're applying it to a totally different part of the system or whatever it might be. So I think that's really true. I'm really glad that came across. But I think it's like, you see this in other industries, like maybe it's top of mind because of like strikes that are going on right now. But like, if you think about the way that in movies, people will be like, oh, or TV shows, they're like, oh, it's like Mad Men, but set in Ireland in the 80s or whatever. You know what I mean? Like people will use a shorthand in creative industries to do that, to like allow you to conceptualize something in a really easy way. And it's naturally, I mean, we might sort of think of it like, oh, you're just boiling things down. But I'm like, but it's important to boil things down. And I think that we get so lost in problem statements and technical designs and stuff like that, which are really, really important. But we, if we don't take that time to remember, we're, built, we're making something creative and like that creative 
like condensing of the idea is a really important stage. We kind of do ourselves a disservice. You know, I think it, it may, then the creative person is like, oh, you're just making a mock. You're just making a picture instead of being like, no, I'm trying to bring something to life that we were all trying to conceptualize together. How do designers do that? You, you know, you talk in near the start of the book about framing and bringing to life. I think it's what you just said there, an idea or even the giving something a, a label or a name so we can easily refer to it. I'm a designer. I'm on a team. Everyone's got their crossed wires all over the place. What what do I actually do? Because one thing that's easy about a mock is I can like create it and show it to people and it's a tangible thing, right? Yeah. What strategies or advice do you have for people to try and like engage with the more amorphous kind of set of let's tame an idea and get all on the same page about it? Yeah. I mean, I think the reality is that this can happen at different moments. Like the ideal canonical thing of, oh, you should do this at the very beginning and be really rigorous about getting your concept clear is wonderful if it happens, but you have to almost like have made the mistake before of it not happening to know that that needs to happen. So, you know, you could do drawing exercises. Like I think the irony is that drawing and visual things are a really great way to get to conceptual clarity and to get to new words, right? Like, so I'm sure that like when the content designer came back to the room with the idea of the sandwich and just said sandwich, she probably had to sketch out, well, no, but like the bread is this part and the lettuce is this part before it came to life. So there's a fusing of the two things that I think is really valuable. So it's not so much about avoiding mocks. I think it is avoiding high fidelity if you can and sketching and being really like free with revs and iterations because what I find is we are so worried about efficiency and about delivering value that sometimes we're like, no, no, no. It's like, I'm only doing my job well if I get, we have this thing where we want to get it right the first time. And that's just not the way creativity happens. And like, if you're really having kind of joy in the conceptual moment, you should be willing to like do a lot of like sketches and like showing stuff to people and making it feel really lightweight and, and free and easy, but also sketching things that are not interfaces, right? Like so sketching a concept or an idea, sketching a journey. We do this a lot. Like you might sketch the user doing things. I think it's a good thing to sort of shake yourself up and not rely on the same crutches you always have. Because I, what I find is like people who are like, oh, I need to sketch the user journey. And that becomes like a, a crutch. Then it's not actually giving you new ideas. And like anything you do early on in a design process is worth its weight in gold only if it's giving you real new ideas to follow. And if you're just doing it as a matter of course, then you have to sort of think to yourself, well, you know, what is this actually giving me? And the reality is that it's often you can think that you're really aligned. And it's only when you get into the mock stage, when you're actually designing the interface and you sort of point at things on the page and say, well, what does this do? And what does this represent? And sort of like, what is happening here? that you can then sort of say, oh no, we don't actually agree. And I think it's just important to say, hey, it's important that we pause and we talk about the things and the conceptual things that we disagree on rather than just trying to like force ourselves through the pain of like, let me do like 18 more revs at this stage to try to like match what it is you have in your head. Like, please, let's take a moment. Let's have a workshop. Let's have a drawing session where you can sketch out for me what your idea is, whether this is your design director or your VP or whoever else. And just trying to sort of flatten the design discussion. Like for me, the most productive things are when you have people from lots of different disciplines who are using like the most simple tools possible, pen and paper, if you can, maybe remotely, you have to use FigJam or whatever. And you're saying, hey, let's all recognize the fact that we have a different idea here and let's try to get all those ideas out so we can actually agree on where we're at. And I think my former manager from Shopify, Amy Thibodeau, said like, it's a book about thinking. And it kind of is, like it is about recognizing when you're stuck recognizing what types of tools will get you unstuck rather than there being this like silver bullet process that will always work. 
it strikes me as well that it's also useful to allow yourself to fluidly move between those levels of fidelity, like almost the conceptual and the implementation and not think of it as a one-way thing, right? Where, yes. where you can go and look at the implementation and then go, something's not quite right here. Let's go and re-examine lots of parallels, maybe with visual design, right? Where sometimes people can skip the, what are we trying to say? Which I guess would be the wireframing stage and go straight to visual design and then obsess about those details. The parallel would be like the word or the comma placement or whatever, when in fact, you need to drag yourself back up a layer of abstraction, everyone back up a layer of abstraction and, and take yes. another path at that and maybe just go, go back and forth between them a little bit. Yeah, and I think this is why like you often, if you have ignored any kind of conceptual misalignment throughout the process and you get to the stage where you're naming the thing and no one can agree on the name, then I'm like, well, there was a problem all along. But that is another place where it's like, let's go back to a higher level of fidelity and let's sort of talk about because it can be so frustrating to get to the end of a design process and then be like, oh, we don't agree on what to name this. We don't agree on who's who the audience is. You know, what have we spent our time making? So a lot of this then becomes about like healthy design teams and having like enough sort of strength within your design team to be willing to to do another rev, to go back and up, like up the layers of abstraction, like you say, and to not have that feel like a loss, to have that feel like, no, this is making the outcome stronger. Speaking as a design manager, that's truly what I try to do for my team is just to make it feel safe for them to question things all the way along instead of being like, no, no, we're locked in. And even if we don't even know what we're doing, we're going to get it out there no matter what, right? And then you've got to a point where you can ship something and the process doesn't end there. Obviously the process of design, but, but the process of definition that I think you're talking about as well. Another classic Elizabethism from the intercom days was the ship of Theseus. Oh, yes, yes, yes. You want to explain that a little bit and then uh, and maybe talk about what happens after a product is launched and you, you hit these points where the product has to change. And that's like a different set of framing and reframing again. Yes. So the ship of Theseus idea is the idea that if you have a boat that leaves a port and then you replace every board of the ship on the journey, if it gets into its destination, it's still the same ship. And I think that's the idea of like products are constantly changing and constantly pivoting and there can be like by their very nature, the fact that they are digital and ephemeral, it doesn't mean they're easy to change. Like the, you know, the code is often really, really difficult. It's really hard to change, but there is that flexibility. Like when you build a chair, the chair is the chair and you can take it apart down to the wood pieces, but like you're very less likely to do that. And so there's going to be this necessity to change. And, and it's just a question of, of allowing that kind of expansiveness into the, your design thinking, not so that I think the danger is that you start to sort of say, oh, when I'm naming this or when I'm designing it, I have to think about every possible future use case and allow like enough flexibility into it such that like it could become this or it could become that. Because then you lose the crux of like, there is this vanishing point where it's the user seeing it. It's in the moment that they're seeing it, it needs to make sense to them and it needs to do something useful for them. So I think it's, you need to have that exactness and that clarity about who you're actually serving, like who your reader is effectively, but then allow yourself to, not be too attached to that outcome and to sort of resist the change that might be necessary when you move on. So like, I think we talked about this when I was writing the book about like, you know, different, even just products and packaging, like you can have a platform that you make and then you want to sort of rewrap its capabilities for new users or for users who have changed or who have different needs or for a new technology that comes down the pipe. So like, 
you have to be like, you know, in a perfect world, all of our platforms would be just like these beautiful modular sets of capabilities that we could just reform in any way. And of course, just by nature, that isn't always the way it is. We sort of, we do lock ourselves into certain channels and, and it's just a question of, I think this is really like design leadership is like the good judgment to know when it's, when it's worth the effort to make a change, to pivot something, when sometimes renaming something is enough because you're basically like just repointing it at a new audience or when it's actually like, no, we need to look under the hood and actually reshape what this is meant to do. I think when I started at Intercom, I think this quote is accredited to me and it's not actually mine, which is, it's the same language from code to customer. Take it, take it. Take it, but I actually think that came from the Intercom engineers. I think, I can't remember who, but I remember being in a room with a bunch of Intercom engineers who were like, honestly, the best coworkers ever because when I joined, I remember it being like, well, the engineers feel like we need someone to help us with naming. And I was like, I mean, like what a gift as a content person to feel like you've joined a company where like the engineers are the ones who really want to work with you and want to like get into the detail. And I remember having like one of my first meetings, we talked about like the difference between an app and an integration and a plugin and a widget. And, you know, people geeking out on the semantics of it because that's really meaningful from an engineering perspective as much as it was to me. But that, that same language from code to customer was this goal that we had of, we wanted to have that clarity that the naming conventions we use in the interface would be the same as are used in the code. And it's really hard because you have to be willing to let go of your like legacy a little bit in order to let the product itself morph and change and evolve. And you have to let go of, like, I think there is a bit of a perfectionist in everybody who works in product design, whether you're an engineer or a designer, and you have to be willing to let go of that perfectionism in order for change to happen. I loved the use the same words from code to customer was the was the full exhortation, right? And I loved it because it broadened out so much what the actual work was from like UI copywriting to something that like was the full stack of what we're doing and driving that idea of like the alignment that we're on the same idea from from code to customer, but like Mm -hmm. thing that's named in the API, which a customer will never see, right? It's the same name as the component that the customer sees and the labeling of the thing in the UI that the customer sees. The customer only benefits or sees the surface level thing, but having that like steel thread of an idea carrying all the way through from top to bottom, I think is so valuable internally that it carries through in the clarity that you eventually get that by the time it reaches the customer. It's true. It is a lot. It's a really admirable goal. And I think the process of aiming for it is useful, even if you don't get that to that perfection. And I think, you know, for the first two years I worked at Shopify, I worked on the platform team. So like developers were our audience. And the question of like, what is a developer, especially in somewhere like Shopify was a really interesting one, because often it was like the same person who was building the online store, like it was a one person shop, and they're doing their own development work. And sometimes it was an agency partner, like it was a very different type of person. And so Often you did have someone looking at the API and the terminology used in the API and then looking at the interface and being like, how do these things fit together? So if you have this expectation that, you know, the same human being won't literally see all of these different, if you, it's like you're taking your design and showing it at cross, like one of those wonderful cross-section books where you can see all the different layers. Um, they may sort of get their eyes on in through documentation, like the different sides one of the things that a team of mine worked on was the Shopify CLI, which is the command line interface. And that was like, take your GUI and turn it into command line tools. And then it's all terminology. And I was like, like, it's just such a wonderful, fun thing to do is to like deconstruct everything down to its words because that's what everything's made of. 
And maybe increasingly everything is made of this <laughs> words, right? With, with, with you mentioned like the industry changes. And so, you know, an obvious interesting thing to note with the timing of your book is you were probably writing it right in the middle of the large language model revolution. What was that even like in terms of like the act of writing yeah. the book, figuring out what you needed to, to address there? Well, the timing was terrible because I had finished writing it at the time the LLNs came out. And then I remember talking to my editor and being like, because I wrote it in early 2021, like two years ago in like six months. So it takes a long time to put a book together is what I realized, like a year and a half. And I think it, it was a few months after I had done that first draft and we were still doing edits, but you get to the point where like adding a whole new chapter would be really difficult. So I was like, hmm, okay, is this like a, maybe if, I, if I'm lucky enough to do a second edition, I would do that or would I do a blog post about it? And so I referenced it in a couple of places to make it timely. But I was also very aware, having worked on operator and the early bot systems at, at Intercom, you know, I was, you know, sitting in on conversations at Shopify around LLMs and like, that every, like I'm sure every company was having these conversations about how they should be used. And I was like, oh, it feels so familiar. It really, really does. And so I was really curious. I was like, I don't feel like I have enough skin in the game as an individual contributor to be able to speak to this. Like, I would love to like observe this and maybe work on things like this for the next couple of years and then write about it because there is that first, first flush of the new technology and like how magical will it really be when, it, when the rubber hits the road. But, you know, what's fascinating to me is it's the exact same thing as doing the CLI. It's like you are basically taking your entire design experience and you are turning it into a library of objects and actions and people and moments. And then you are saying these can be delivered conversationally. And the thing that was so fascinating to me when I worked at Intercom, working on conversation, like even just like very simple interactions back and forth, capturing email, that kind of thing was like, you're taking away everything and all you're left with is the human and the bot on either side. And in Intercom at the time, it was even more because you, then you have to just hand over to the support person. Yeah. You know, so you're really talking about like human brains and how they work and what they expect to happen in that moment. And you don't have any of the construct of like, oh, well, I can, I have this square or rectangular screen in front of me. And I know that in the, on the right, I'm typically see this. And on the left, I'll typically see that, which gives the designer so much more power to set the agenda. And with Conversational design, you just don't have, you give away so much of your power, which I find so fascinating. So I'm very interested to see where it goes. I, I remember reading through the book in a later edit and being like, is there anything here that I wouldn't say if I had been working on an LLM for a year or something like that? And I was like, no, I feel like these truths still hold up, but I'm very excited to see where it goes and maybe write more about it. I mean, I think a ton of the ideas you have around thinking and how to think and ideas and concepts and, and how to get everyone aligned around similar concepts are kind of universal. And then maybe on the writing end of things or even the tone of voice end of things, that's probably where I would imagine we have like lots of space to play in the next couple of years and, and figure these things out properly. Yeah, absolutely. Like, I mean, so much of design is about convention and what people grow to expect. And so, you know, I'm interested to see what conventions evolve out of LLMs and how, you know, you know, we always have these idea that it'll be just totally open-ended and you can ask the, the bot anything and it will just give you the perfect answer. And I think that that will maybe be true at some point, but even if it is true, that doesn't really solve the problem of like, well, how does the human being know how to frame that question? Or how do you guide them to the right spot if you have no interface or very little interface? So you know, I think that's what I'm interested in is the evolving conventions. And then like, to what extent do like the conventions start to trip up the design because they become, you know, they become a tool for advertising or they become a tool for whatever other like totally viable and important commercial needs that a product might have. 
And how does the designer find their way through like the human interface relationship with all of the like conventions that might pop up? Because if you really look at like, you know, web design conventions, not let alone product design conventions, like over the last, you know, 10 or 15 years, like things have really solidified. And I would say almost like congealed (laughs) into some conventions and patterns that don't necessarily serve people commercially very well. I don't think they serve users particularly well. Like a shakeup is, would be an amazing thing. I think the next five years in design are going to be really interesting and LLMs are going to shake things up in in interesting ways. I agree. (laughs) So let's say I'm a designer and I've spent the last however many years, you know, arranging drop downs and radio buttons and all these conventions of the graphical user interface that you're talking about. And maybe I'm not so confident as a writer. I've never really gotten into writing blog posts or, you know, I might not be working in my first language, my native language, and, and that's a bit of a barrier. What advice would you give to designers who are, who are seeing like maybe the, the rising importance of writing as a delivery mechanism for the products or, or the actual interface for the product? What should they be paying attention to? What should they yeah. be trying to work on and improve? Okay, so this is something where I don't even know if every content designer agrees with me. I mean, I hope they don't actually, because there should be lots, you know, lots of discussion and debate. I, I don't think that when you're writing for an interface, you're actually writing. The more you can think of the text as a design element, the better off you are. And so there's a team I work with at Shopify on my team called the we call them the quality crew. And they do these like very short-term fixes of like maybe like patterns that weren't applied particularly well or areas of the product that have become bloated. And they're like very much like, you know, rubber meets the road, like let's make this better. And there is one designer and one content designer working on that. And what the content designer and I, and all of us have talked about, is like, it's really an editing job. And so what you're trying to do is take stuff away. If you are looking at an interface and you are taking text away, you are almost certainly doing the design a favor. So you actually, it's like less about writing and more about removing um, is a good kind of like, I suppose a reassuring crutch to have if you don't feel like writing is your forte. So you want to get rid of everything from like the, from the punctuation level. Like you don't need, like forget everything you were taught in secondary school about writing. It's really like get rid of punctuation, get rid of anything that's visual noise, really stand back from the screen and look at the text as if it is just something that fills space look at the the words that pop out at you because really people are not reading it. I mean, this has been said since time immemorial, but people are not reading the interface. They are pattern finding. They're looking for specific words and they're trying to find handles indoors to move through those doors to the next stage. And so if you can kind of find a way to create that distance from yourself, so you're not obsessing over the way it sounds to the ear or the way it like is grammatically constructed and you kind of forget all of those things and look at it as if you were... Honestly, like try to think about it as if you were like someone who is English is not their first language for someone who have a lower reading level. And you really are like, it's, it's very, very rudimentary. That doesn't mean that like beautiful writing can't also exist in interfaces and do a great job. It can, and it should. But when you're really thinking about moving through a journey, it's signposting it. You, you may as well be designing like the New York City subway system map. Like that's more what you're trying to do with words than trying to write prose. And I think that people trip themselves up in the same way that I think content designers who are trying to move into design think, oh, I I don't know about color and I don't know about fonts and stuff. And they trip themselves up and they forget that actually the meat of it is, it's about the use of space. It's about hierarchy and sequencing. It's about, you know, like what things are grouped together. It's about, you know, those are all things that writers understand. So a lot of my work has been about like, there's so much thinking that we have in common and not to be afraid to 
step outside of your realm because really it's like the interface is what you're trying to make. And the more you can look at it as the sum of all of its parts instead of obsessing over the tiny, like, you know, is this the right word exactly? And I talk about this in the book as well. Like it's really important to understand your, your product the way an information architect would. So if you think about the most common problems that are, I find are, we use one word to describe something over here and a totally different word to describe it over there. And we forget, like, it's kind of like a library, like think of these as tags and you should use the same tag to describe the thing in in two places. And so try to think about it three-dimensionally that way so that as somebody moves through it, they have that sort of seed in their head of like, oh, you use the word, I don't know, iPhone over here and now you're calling it a smartphone over here. You know, those kinds of things, consistency are important, but it's not about consistency with your English teacher's rules from secondary school, it's really about consistency of the smallest patterns and elements. In the spirit of, you know, words meaning things, it's almost like writing is the wrong word for the activity that you're describing, because I don't think reading is the verb that applies to the audience. The the audience sees or looks, but they don't read the way you read Mm -hmm. a book. I think like when we think writing, we think, or I do at least like, Oh, Stephen King hunched over a Smith Corona typewriter or whatever it is, like writing pages of sentences and paragraphs. And it's just such a different thing that we're creating for the reader slash viewer. And I think the funny thing is we're all aware of like how we use the web, how completely attention deficit our own use of the web is. Open a tab, scan down really quickly, close the tab, gone again. And yet we still design for the uh, some kind of imagined assumed audience who's going to sit there and like read from the top left mm-hmm. corner to the bottom right corner the whole page and it's yeah. just not how it works so it's a it's in some ways it's like realizing what you know yourself you know about, about how this stuff is is internalized and received by the audience yeah it totally i mean it's semiotics and it's also very physical right i mean i have a mobile team as well as the desktop experience and it's really different. You know, the same rules don't necessarily apply in terms of the, or, you know, where we put information or how people absorb it when you're talking about a mobile screen versus a desktop one. And it's not just because of the size of it. It's because like, like, you know, you know, we talk a lot about keyboard navigation versus mouse and point and click and then tapping and like all of the physical interactions that you use, because like when you are sitting in front of your laptop, like, yes, we're all very still and probably too still and we sit too much, but we're also doing something physical. And we are, we, our brains at least are trying to I think mm. tell us that we're doing something three-dimensional and because you, you, you use the back button, right? You, you were, you were trying to pull yourself out of things and move into things. We use a lot of three-dimensional words to describe what we're doing. I'm very interested to see actually like what things like vision OS and other types of tools mm. will do to interface because it really does make you think about things in a more three-dimensional way. So yeah, I, you're right. It isn't writing. It is, it is signposting. It is, it is semiotics. I wish there was a less wonky <laughs> word to use yeah. for it, but if you can get designers to sort of say, like, just don't try to write, like try to try to think about it as, as like signs that live in space, then you're doing a better job. Yeah. Yeah. Very much. It's, it's the idea of what's the purpose of writing. Maybe often the purpose of writing is not to be read. It's actually to get your own ideas down on a page and realize how poorly you understood your ideas. And it's so meta, even in the, I think in the intro of the book, you have this thing like, as I wrote this book, I was exploring <laughs> and understanding what it was I wanted to say, which yeah. is also one of the primary benefits of writing. And so I guess even for that designer who's thinking like, how do I get started writing? It's not something I'm comfortable with. 
maybe one way is to just start yourself, right? For an audience of one yourself and see, because it, it's, it's an amazing unveiling of, I didn't actually understand my ideas. I thought I did, but then yeah. when I try to elucidate it really clearly, there's new ideas here to, to follow. And so even just writing for yourself can be so, so valuable and should be a key part of the design process for designers and, and PMs, of course, and even engineers. So across the whole product team, I think that the, the, the stuff that you're talking about is relevant and even, even vital, I would say. Yeah, I think that's true. And I think it's like, you know, I talked a lot at the beginning of this about, you know, spending time clarifying your concepts. I think so much of that is really like, and, and writing is a way of clarifying concept with yourself, right? Like being in conversation with yourself. But for, for that purpose, like we, we, we sometimes put a lot of store in like a deliverable, like, oh, a glossary with lots of defined terms. And those things are really valuable to have those consistent, like things like just decided and done. But usually, especially if you're designing something new or a new concept, it really is more about the conversation you're having with each other and the process of going through it than it is like, it's not useful if one person goes away and writes a problem statement and then shakes at people and is like, I decided this is what the concept is. Like, it really has to be a conversation. Yeah. So yeah, and I think like the, the writing process can be done like honestly or dishonestly. And sometimes like, like you know, we, we, our templates and stuff will lead us to sort of write to fill space and write to be like, well, I followed the template and I wrote down what I think it should be. And then people were like, okay, yeah, that kind of sort of sounds fine. Let's move it through. But if you're not really thinking, it's, it's just, it's hard to think about stuff. Like it's hard to let you make your brain like actually stop and think about things properly. And that's really what we're talking about is, is just taking the time to think. Like I wrote this book three times, really. Like I, I had an outline that was very close to my talk outline. And then I somehow got in my own head about it. And then the second time I wrote it, I rewrote it with a completely different outline. And then I realized that I was right the first time and I went back. And so it was also the freedom to be like, that wasn't wasted time. Like it was definitely better third pass than it was in the first pass. And to know that, you know, when I got to the end of writing the book, I was like, oh, now I know how to write a book. I want to go back to the beginning, do it again. Now that I figured it out, because it's like every creative process you go through, whether it's writing a book, making an interface, you know, architecting a whole product, whatever it might be, like they're all, it's all a discovery and you have to be willing to let yourself make mistakes in order to get it right. Yeah. Forget LLMs. Your next book can be a self-help book that helps <laughs> yeah. people yeah. to just understand what it is they're actually thinking and really should think. But I do think the concepts run almost that deep, right? Where it's, it's tools for thought. There's an interesting like substrate of, of, of uh, apps like Roam and Reflect. There's a whole yeah. bunch like, that are, are pegged as tools for thought where you get to interlink your tools. And it's all predicated on that idea in all aspects of your life. There's value to the thought stuff is extremely, <laughs> you know, out there in the ether and trying to do that hard thing of making it concrete. Yeah. A hundred percent. Yeah. I, 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 I think I was constantly like being like, oh my gosh, this is just way too like navel gazing and like self-helpy when I was thinking about it. And then my, my development editor, who's the editor that kind of helps you with structure and the storytelling of the, the thing, you know, the big editing process turned out to be a poet. <laughs> and I was like, this is perfect. <laughs> so, cause he was <laughs> not afraid to deal with metaphor and to be like, no, like this is important. Like, what are you actually trying to say? And I have to say as well, like having a great editor and I like intercom the blog and the whole process of writing an intercom was always such a gift because the editors there are so fantastic, but working with an editor is just an amazing thing. And having someone again, conversation who, who could talk to you about where, what you were trying to get at and help you clarify your thinking 
so yeah, it was super meta the whole way along. <laughs> yeah. This maybe is a bit like asking a marathon runner after they cross the finish line, what, what's next champ? But Elizabeth, you finished your book. Any big plans or projects lined up for, for the next year to come? I want to write another book. I don't know what about yet. I really, I really enjoyed it. I really like, I really love sort of like, you know, pouring honestly, like 15 years of thinking into it, you know, and then the question is like, do I need to work for another 15 years to do that again? I don't think so. I, I, I really, it sort of demystified the process for me. So I'd really love to tackle um, another topic and write more. I, you know, I started out in journalism and I, I got so much joy out of writing and it was really wonderful to rediscover that. But yeah, other than that, I'm taking, I'm taking a month off and going to Australia this winter. So I'm going to just enjoy myself. And yeah, when I come back in 2024, maybe there'll be a new project ahead. I look forward to welcoming you back for book, book tour number two, whenever that happens, it'll be great to have you back. Elizabeth, thanks a million for coming on and brilliant to connect with you and, and really honestly special to be able to see some of the nascent ideas and see them really encapsulated and come to life in this way is, is awesome. Where, if people out there listening, where could they keep up with you and your work if they want to learn more? Where can they get your book, Designed by Definition, published by A Book of Hearts? Yeah, um, A Book of Hearts, uh, you can order direct from them. And luckily, given that they were very aware that ordering from the UK and Ireland is like sometimes expensive, but they're direct, they're available through Blackwell's and on Amazon. So you can actually get the book more widely than you could before, which is great. So just, just search for Design by Definition. My social presence is a little to be decided given the tumult in the social world right now, but I am still on X and threads as E. McGuan pretty much everywhere. Um, and I do write on Medium. So I have a collection of posts and things on Medium and, and I'm writing there as well. So slowly but surely, and hopefully next year, uh, I'll be doing producing more content there and you can follow me there. Amazing. Elizabeth McGran, thank you so much. Thanks, Emmett. This is Inside Intercom.